the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amin. Today is the fourth Sunday of the Coptic month of Boopi, and we read from the Gospel of St. Luke about the raising of the son of the widow of Nain. And, of course, the uh, immediate attention of the Gospel draws us to the, uh, the act of resurrecting somebody who was dead. But actually, I think that um, it's easy in, in, in focusing on the resurrection of the, of the son of this widow to overlook the importance of the, uh, the person of the widow herself. And the gospel emphasizes the importance of pointing out that she was a widow. And there is significance to her being a widow. Because the gospel says, And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And so I want to to look at two aspects of the gospel this morning. The first one is the importance of, of her being a widow and what does that mean in terms of the context of the miracle and in our spiritual life. And then secondly, at the end of the gospel, not the son who is raised and not the mother who receives her son back alive, but it's the people who witness, who cry out saying, a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. So clearly the event of the raising of the son of the widow of Nain had a tremendous impact on those who witnessed it and they experienced a sort of manifestation, a revelation of God in their midst. So the first point about this widow He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. In those days, of course, um, the livelihood of a person depended on the man of the house. And if the man of the house, the father, was, was not present, then it fell to the sons or the sons of the household to care for the family. Women in those days had no social standing and had no voice and had no economic power. So the significance of the mourning of this woman is not merely, although it is significant in and of itself, that she lost her only son, but in losing her only son, she has become completely devoid of any support, completely devoid of any security in her life, completely devoid of any voice of any standing, of even acknowledgement in the society. So you can imagine the despair that is taking over her mind and her heart as she thinks not only about the loss of her only son, but about her future and how, um, how much this future lacks any hope or joy or a sense of well-being. And This, in fact, is an important aspect of the miracle this morning because the Gospels are full of accounts of men and women who were outsiders, who were on the margins. They were marginal figures. They are the ones who suffered injustice, inequality, exploitation, persecution, and so on. They are the ones who lack any sort of material resources, and they lack any voice to be heard in the community. The voices of widows were silenced because they had no status at all. And so she 
was among the poorest of the poor on this day because she had, again, no material or even social standing whatsoever. And this is a sort of prelude to the ministry of Christ. Because at the very beginning of Luke, or I should say just before this chapter, uh, by a few chapters, um, in the fourth chapter of Luke, Christ enters into a synagogue and he opens the scroll and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So the hope and the joy that Christ brings to this widow is not merely the resurrection of her son, who will once again, like all of us, die, but it is the presence of hope, the presence of life, the presence of love, the presence of someone who sees and cares and who has come specifically for her and all who are like her. And in the Old Testament, there were commands that were very strict against the people of Israel of how they should treat the oppressed and how they should treat people like widows and orphans. For example, we read in, Levitic, in Exodus, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you do afflict them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. I will hear him for I am compassionate, says the Lord. And in Psalm 85, or sorry, Psalm 68, the psalmist says that the Lord is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is the God in his holy habitation. So in the Old Testament, there was a sense that God cared for the marginalized, saw their plight, and was demanding justice for them. And he demanded from his people to be a holy nation that they would treat the widow, the orphan, the traveler, the stranger with dignity and with respect. But in the new covenant, the, the Lord does something even more profound. He not only acknowledges the marginalized, he becomes one of them. He not only sees them from a distance, but he enters into their very condition. And the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ chose to be born in Nazareth, chose to live in poverty, allowed that his teachings would be confronted by those who had the standing among the community, the religious institutions, and the leaders, and that he would be associated with sinners and tax collectors, all of this made him one of them. All of this made him a marginalized person, an outsider, somebody who was worthy, like them, to be ignored, or even worse, to be persecuted. And in many ways, of course, many of the fathers of the church point out that there is an even stronger parallel, and that not only is the Lord Jesus identified with the widow, but he's also, of course, identified with the dead son, because the mother of God, St. Mary, also was a widow, and she offered her only son, and she held her only son in her arms, dead on the cross, and he also was resurrected by the Father and his divine power. So Christ enters into this image of the widow and the son 
in a very profound and beautiful way. And there's something there for each of us too. There is something being said about who is the widow, who is the orphan? Is it the other or is it me? Of course, being an outsider makes somebody extremely vulnerable and, as we said, inconsequential. And the vulnerable and the inconsequential, the ones who are the outsiders, the marginalized, they, they have something to teach us because they know with great pain, again, more profoundly than we can try to understand from observation, how much self-created security vanishes in life. They understand that whatever you think gives you security and a standing and a voice is something that could be taken away in a moment and you will be left with your own poverty and your own nakedness. They know that from experience. They know that from painful experience. And Christ, he wants us to be like the widow, like the orphan, not like the one who has a sense of security. That's why in one of his parables he says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So what is the comparison here between the one who is rich to himself, builds up security and a foundation on which he can stand independently on and to sort of protect his future, or the one who is poor to himself and yet, he, because of his poverty to himself, he can be rich towards God, as the parable says. So the marginalized, they know the, the pain of insecurity. And they know that their only security comes from God. And they know that their deepest identity has nothing to do with wealth, with prestige, with social status, with titles, even within religious structures. They know that all of these things are fleeting. All of these things are not who they really are. When you have been stripped of all of your honors and all of your riches and all of your titles and all of your material things, what are you left with? You're just left with you, the raw you, the naked you, the true you, the only you. Right? And so that's, again, something that the widow teaches us, this sense of true identity, not a facade, not a costume that we put on, not masks that we wear every day. And there is something also very beautiful about what the widow and the orphan teach us, which is a certain boldness and courage. Right? There's a, another uh, beautiful parable that the Lord taught about a widow 
and the unjust judge. And in the parable of the widow and the unjust judge, again, we see that the point of it, sometimes because the Lord tells us the parable in the context of prayer and persistence in prayer, we focus just on the persistence, but we lose sight of the fact that what's central to the parable is that the person is a widow. And so the widow, again, she persists. Why? Not just because she has boldness and courage, which anyone else might have, but because she literally has no other advocate. She literally has no other voice. She literally has no other power or strength apart from her cry to gain the attention of the judge. So the Lord said to the people that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. So the point of the parable is not simply that the Lord is telling us to persist, to keep at it, to get up again every time we fall, but he's telling us that this strength in prayer, this perseverance in the spiritual life, this persistence in pursuing God comes from only the deep place of poverty, comes only from the deep place of knowing I have no other helper but you, as we say in the prayers of the church. Right? Have mercy on us, O God, the Father, the Pantocrator, O Holy Trinity, have mercy on us. O Lord God of hosts, be with us, for we have what? No other helper in our hardships and tribulations but you. Do you really feel, do I really feel that I have no other support in this life other than God? That I have no other voice? That I have nothing else to stand on? That I have no other security? No other comfort other than God? Or do I have a sense that, you know what, it's really not that bad? I'll go to God when things get really bad. I'll persist because I want to be a good Christian and I want to be faithful to my prayer life. But where is the, the real pain that comes from within of this widow and the orphan? Do you have that pain? Do I have that pain when we pray, when we seek God, when we look up at him? Are we seeking him with that kind of uh, urgency? So I am the widow I am the orphan and the poor and the stranger. There's a, a beautiful psalm in the first hour, Psalm 24. It's one of my favorite psalms of the first hour. And in that um, psalm, the psalmist cries out and he says, Look upon me and have mercy upon me, for I am an only child and poor. And some other translations say, Look upon me and have mercy upon me, for I am an orphan and poor, or I am alone and afflicted. All of these translations project desperation, project urgency. 
even if I have many brethren, even if I have many friends, even if I have many uh, siblings and uh, parents and uncles and aunts and church support, yet I feel I am an orphan, Lord. None of, none of this support means anything without your support, without your grace, without your mercy. To feel that when we stand before God, we are, in fact, orphans. Bless the crown of the year, as we say in the prayers, right? With your goodness, for the sake of the poor of your people, the widow, the orphan, the traveler, the stranger, and for the sake of us all who, what? Entreat you and seek your holy name. In other words, not just the widow, Lord, not just the orphan, not just the traveler, not just the stranger, but any one of us, Lord, who becomes a widow in your sight, spiritually, who makes himself an orphan for you, who lives like a traveler and a stranger in this life, who feels lost and afflicted. For all of us, Lord, who look upon you and seek your holy name. And uh, there's a beautiful chapter in St. Paul's epistle to Timothy, chapter 5, where St. Paul is talking to St. Timothy about how to care for members of the community, and he talks about different kinds of widows. He says there are some widows who have um, relatives, and those relatives should help to support the widow. And there are some widows who um, get support from the community, and this community should support those widows. But then he says, and for some reason, as if I never read this verse before, this week when I was preparing for this homily, I felt like I'd never seen this verse before. He said, a widow who is truly in need and is alone in the world places all her trust in God and never ceases her prayers and supplications night and day. In other translations, it says, a true widow, not these other widows who have support, not these other widows who have relatives in community, but he says, a true widow is one who is truly alone in the world and places all of her trust in God and never ceases her prayers and supplications night and day. As if he's saying the other ones really don't qualify to be true widows. As if he's saying, do you want to be a true widow? If to be a true widow is to experience and to feel and to know that you are alone and you can only place your trust in God and never cease your cries and supplications day and night. So this is the, the, the gospel this morning. I am the widow. I am the, the one who is without hope, without any help, without any security, without any, any means. And then, at the end of the gospel, it's the people as if we move from scene one to scene two. Scene one, the, the widow has embraced her, her dead son who is now raised, and perhaps they have run off in joy, and yet the people are left. What do we make of what we have seen? How does this affect us? How will our life be different today from what we witnessed? And they say, God has visited his people. God has visited his people. So, the language of the Gospels, the miracles, the parables, the teachings of Christ is always about Christ manifesting himself 
that God has visited his people, that God is with his people, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the whole purpose of everything that he came to offer us, is to show us and convict us of this reality, of this truth, that God indeed has visited us, and he continues to visit us. And this visitation is not meant for material things. It's not even meant for the material body to rise again. Again, this son was raised, but he will die again. And whatever miracles we experience and whatever healings we have in this life, we will also face that ultimate fate of physical physical death. So when God visits his people, he raises them not from physical death, not from paralysis and blindness, but when God visits his people, he raises them from spiritual death. He raises them from spiritual blindness, spiritual paralysis. That's the point. That's the point of all of the miracles, is for him to convince us of the reality behind the reality that they're seeing. These people got it. They didn't say simply, wow, let's go and make merry that this young man is alive again. But they were stuck. What do we do? God has visited us. What does that mean? How will our lives change from this moment? And what is this unraveling of, or this, this revealing or this unveiling, that's the word, unveiling of the manifestation of God? As one of the uh, very uh, well-respected theologians, uh, contemporary theologians, Father John Bear, he said, he said, if you were sitting in, uh, in, uh, in Palestine in a cafe in, you know, 30 AD, 31 AD, at the local Starbucks in Palestine, having your coffee, and Jesus walked by, would you say, oh, wow, there goes the word of God. There goes Emmanuel. There goes the second person of the Holy Trinity. Would you say that? Of course not. You would say, there goes any man like any man like anyone else. There goes Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, who was born in Nazareth. That's what you would see. That's what, you would, that's what your eyes would show you. So this is what happened with the disciples, little by little, as they, there was this unveiling. And sort of the climax of that is, is in Matthew 16, Peter, who declares on behalf of, of really all of us who have faith, he declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Who do men say when, they, when I walk by the local Starbucks in Palestine, who do they say I am? So he said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, good guess, Peter. Is that what he said? No. Did he say, oh, that's a good option that you chose, multiple choice. He said, Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, meaning your eyes didn't reveal it to you, your senses didn't reveal it to you, your intellect didn't reveal it to you, it wasn't a good guess. It was an unveiling by the Father. He says, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
My father who opened your eyes. Why did he open your eyes? Because you wanted your eyes to be open. You wanted to see me. You wanted to believe in me. Your heart was open to my message. Your heart was open to the mystery beyond the mystery, to the miracle beyond the miracle, to the visitation of God. And therefore God made that beautiful unveiling. We could say that even in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, is the precondition for the unveiling of God's mystery to us, the manifestation of God, his visitation. And where is his visitation? Just like, just like the scenario of us sitting in the Starbucks in Palestine in 30 or 31 AD, the reality is, is that today, Today, as we're sitting in church, God is visiting us. When we go to the Starbucks after church, that person that's walking by is God's visitation. The book that you read, called the Word of God, the Holy Bible, is God's visitation. The saints that we read about and that we're inspired by is God's visitation. In other words, we have the same problem as the person sitting in the cafe in in 31 AD in Palestine is that we're not looking for God's visitation. We're not looking for him to show himself to me today, now, in this word, in this book, in this person, in this service, in this prayer, in this sacrament. Where is that hunger and that thirst? Abuna and I on... um, on, um, Thursday, we, we, as part of the Orthodox Catholic Book Club, we were invited as a group of clergy, Orthodox clergy, to go visit a Catholic monastery in uh, Lancaster County in an area called Valley Irmo near Palmdale. It's like almost two hours uh, away. Beautiful monastery, um, Benedictine monastery uh, in a very deserted place. And we had a very beautiful day with the fathers there and the, the tour and the talks and the, the fellowship. And uh, as we were there, of course, we were inquiring about who some of the monks were, how long they'd been here. And one of our, our hosts was telling us, she's like, oh, you have to meet Father Philip. Father Philip is 93 years old. He's been in the monastery for 60-some years. Um... So, of course, we were, we were very happy to want to meet Father Philip. And when we met him, we met a hunched-over, short hunched-over, um, elderly man with, a, with a, a sh- sort of a short, scraggly beard, and uh, a person full of joy, full of uh, peace and, and, and zeal for the Lord as if he was living still like one of his first days in the monastery. And uh, this host of ours, she said, oh, um, Father Philip had a very profound experience when he was a young man by a priest here in Los Angeles. His name is Father Aloysius, who he said was a very holy man, a saint. And his encounter with this saint changed his life. And, and was the cause of his entering the monastery. So at the end of the visit, this, uh, this ho- one of the, these, this host, she said, uh, she took me to go and say goodbye to Father Philip who was in the office. He was doing puzzles. 
And uh, he was sitting at the desk, and, and so she said, Father Philip, um, Father Carlos wanted to ask you about Father Aloysius. So he immediately sat up, and he began talking for 10 minutes about this profound experience he had maybe 70-some years ago with a priest here in Los Angeles whose name was Father Aloysius, who changed his life. Now, why, why was that so significant? I remember leaving thinking, this priest has been in this monastery for nine, for, he's 93 years old, he's been in this monastery for maybe 70 years, 60-some years, and he is still living and impacted by the grace of encountering a holy person. 70 years ago, or whatever it was, Father Philip met Father Aloysius and said, God has visited his people, and my life is no longer the same. And I, and I was thinking, how many of us have that experience? At the Eucharist and confession, meeting a holy person, how many of us can say, today God has visited me? God came to me today in this person. God came to me today in this bread and this wine. He came to me today in this sacrament. Another, and I'll end with this final story. Um, somebody just came back from a trip and brought me a, a nice icon of Elder Paisius, so we'll end with the story of, of St. Paisius, Elder Paisius. Again, um, uh, somebody who today is a monk is relating this story. He said he was a law student back in 1988, and he went to go visit Elder Paisius with uh, some of his acquaintances who were urging him to come with them because he was very far from the church and he had no interest in, in these things. And he said when he arrived at uh, the cell of Elder Paisius on Mount Athos, there was about 35 people waiting in the courtyard. And um, they rang the bell, um, but the elder never came, and they kept walking around until finally... Um, they came through the back door, and he said, I don't know what came over me. He said, for the first time in, in 12 years of having a non-existent, non-existent spiritual life, never praying, never interested in God, he said, I knelt down and I said a simple prayer. I said, my God, if you really exist, let the elder come and talk to us. Just... He just impromptu just felt, felt the need to say this prayer. He knelt and said, my God, if you really exist, let the elder come and talk to us. He said, not a few minutes passed, and we found the elder walking towards us with a quiet and sweet smile. And he said, the, the young lawyer, he said, Elder Paisius, he said, what do you want with him? He said, I want to give him this gift of these socks and to take his blessing. So Elder Paisius said, Ben, bow your head so I can bless you. Then he took them to the courtyard of his cell, and he spent an hour with them, after which he said to the young man who had been far from God for all these years, he says, do you want to be my disciple? So the young man said, no, Father, I, I don't have uh, any interest in these things. I, I love the world too much. And he said, I was so far from spiritual life that I didn't even grasp the significance of what he was offering me to be a disciple of a saint. He said, then he, Elder Paisius, left us to go chop some wood. He had to chop wood to care for his own because he was living as a hermit. And he said, I had the thought, now my heart started to open, so he said, I had the thought, I, I want to ask him 
how can we win paradise? How can we win paradise? Right? So he went from having no spiritual inclination to saying a simple prayer to now wanting to know how to have heaven. And then he said he found the elder leave the wood and start walking towards him. This was just a thought he had. And he came to the young lawyer and he said, have love and faith in Christ, my child. Have love and faith in Christ, my child. And he said, as he said it, he looked not in my eyes, but he looked deep into my soul. My legs began to tremble, he said. My heart was beating so fast that I thought it would burst. He said, all I managed to do was to mumble, bless me, Father. And then he turned to his friend, whose name was Greg, and he said, Gregory, let's go. So elder, the, so the elder said, why do you want to leave? Sit down and I will make you a disciple and give you my name. He left, but he said since that time his life completely changed. And although he never saw the elder again, he said, but that presence of Christ was sown in his heart. That presence of Christ was planted in his heart. And some years later he became a monk and he was given the name Paisius, as the elder had prophesied. And this is the, the significance of this story. And the last story is that Christ is the sower. And the parable of the sower, he is the sower, he is the seed, and he is the fruit of what he reaps from what he sows. He is Christ who plants in you Christ in order to make within you Christ. And so the seed is thrown everywhere, generously. As a matter of fact, the seed is thrown in places where it shouldn't be thrown. But that's who God is. So that you can find the seed everywhere. You can find it on the concrete. You can find it in the thorns. You can find it in the good soil. You can find it in the mud. It's there. So can you and I say today, God has visited us. He has visited us with his salvation. And glory be to God forever. Amen.